This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Welcome to Evidence for Faith. Thank you for joining us. This is the show where we explain the benefits of Christianity for personal happiness and human flourishing. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, and I'm Kirk Hastings. You can find our website at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. You can download podcasts of previous shows from iTunes. And if you have a smartphone, you can use the TuneIn radio app to listen to us. Well, Kirk, today we're going to be talking about the history of science in the 20th century. So this is going to be a great show, and everybody stay tuned for an exciting show. But I've got a quote that I want to start the show off with because, you know, last week we did that show on the benefits of marriage, Mm -hmm. and I talked about a quote from Benjamin Franklin that I was going to give, and then I wound up not doing it. So I've got that quote here, and we might as well use it to start the show off. That's a cliffhanger quote, right? Yeah. Stay tuned next week for the quote. (laughs) That's right. This is about marriage by Benjamin Franklin that he wrote when he was about 46 years old. He wrote to a friend of his attempting to dissuade this young man from taking a mistress. So, here's the quote. Marriage is the proper remedy. It is the most natural state of man and therefore the state in which you are most likely to find solid happiness. Your reasons against entering into it at present appear to me not well founded. The circumstantial advantages you have in view by postponing it are not only uncertain, but they are small in comparison to that of the thing itself, the being married and settled. It is the man and woman united that make the complete human being. Separate, she wants his force of body and strength of reason. He, her softness, sensibility, and acute discernment. Together, they are more likely to succeed in the world. A single man has not nearly the value he would have in that state of union. He is an incomplete animal. He resembles the odd half of a pair of scissors. If you get a prudent healthy wife, your industry in your profession with her good economy will be a fortune sufficient. That's from Benjamin Franklin. Wow. Is that that, a great quote? Did that convince the guy to get married? I have no idea. (laughs) We need to find that out. (laughs) Oh, well, I tell you, I think it's a good argument for those young men who are unwilling to get married these days. That that is a good argument. Basically, I think he's saying two heads are better than one. Yeah, and that we are naturally a two-part animal. Alone, we're like the half of a scissor. So That's, <laughs> that's pretty <great>. useless. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Useless without each other. All right, any news items you want to do? Yeah, I have one here by uh, Chuck Colson, which I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with. He has a website called Breakpoint where he uh, he brings up a uh, little articles each week with a Christian perspective on today's news. And he had a little article last week called More, Cri- More God, Less Crime. 
And he goes on to say that in 1993, he was accepting an award at Buckingham Palace, and he was standing next to Prince Philip. And at one point, Prince Philip turned to him and asked him the question, Mr. Colson, what can we do about juvenile crime here in England? Well, uh, Chuck Colson's answer was, send more young British children to Sunday school. Now, right. Prince Philip laughed at that, and he thought he was joking, but then he noticed the look on, on Colson's face, and he was like, you're serious, aren't you? And he said, uh, yes, I am. And he started telling him some uh, interesting uh, documentation. Uh, for instance, he said uh, that Professor Christy Davies of the University of Reading conducted a study that showed when Sunday school attendance was highest in England, crime was lowest. Conversely, when Sunday school attendance declined, the crime rate increased. So Colson yep. repeated to him, he said, send young boys to Sunday school so they can be taught the basics of Christian morality. Yep, excellent. And excellent. He, he gave him a couple more examples of some other studies, but the point is there are quite a few studies out there that show this exact same thing. And he also mentioned a book called More God, Less Crime by Baylor Professor Byron Johnson. Which yeah, he this said, is a new book. Yes, and uh, he uh, said that this was a good uh, thing to read that uh, gives you a background in this. But, you know, the basic idea is that the more religious or Christian trained that people are, the less crime there is. Right, and, and this is proved by, I think the book covers 273 studies on the effect of religion on crime. Yes. Every study that he could find published between 1944 and 2010. And Amazing. They all showed pretty much the same result, which is pretty convincing. Should be, anyway. Yeah, I think it was 90%, right? 90%, 90%, right. 90% of them showed uh, more religiosity resulted in less crime. Right. Excellent. So, parents, now, send your kids to Sunday school. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. He also talked about his own study that was done, and in fact, I think it was the author of this book who studied Chuck Colson's prison ministry. Okay. To, well, he, he found out that their recidiv recidivism rate was much lower than regular. Yes. So, when they went through Colson's religious training, they had a recidivism rate of 8% compared to 20.3 for the people who were in the control group. Right. So much better, about twice as much better. So what Chuck uh, closes out his argument with is he says that the gospel changes lives, and it's the best hope for keeping men and women out of prison. Absolutely. Absolutely. And exactly the kind of thing that we talk about on this show, the kinds of evidences that show that Christianity is true and that it does bring personal happiness and human flourishing And it brings to benefits to society, yep. Yeah. Sure does. There's a kind of a footnote here. He mentions that this professor, the one who wrote this book, some years prior was kicked out of University of Memphis because of his research on crime and religion, and the other professors didn't like the results he was getting. Yes, that's, that is that's really a, a shame. shame. Yeah, it doesn't say that they had a problem with his research. It says that uh, he simply didn't fit in. <laughs> right. They didn't like his Christian views. Nope. And that's something that we'll get into. The history of science in the 20th century will talk a little bit about some of the politicization of science. I'll bet. But I've got a news item, too, that my wife handed to me. She found it on the Wall Street Journal. 
and very, very interesting. This is about birth control pills and how it affects young women. Did you hear about this? Yes, you had mentioned this to me earlier, and I found what you said kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, this is really surprising. Uh, to me, it's very surprising, but I, I guess if you think about it, it sort of makes sense. But it turns out that taking the pill makes less masculine men seem more attractive, <laughs> according to a small but growing body of evidence. And this article is by Shirley Wang from the Wall Street Journal. She says that one influential study done in the 1990s, dubbed the T-shirt study, asked women about their attraction to members of the opposite sex by smelling the men's T-shirts. <laughs> yeah, interesting, huh? Uh -huh. The, the findings showed that humans transmit and recognize information pertinent to sexual attraction through chemical odors known as pheromones. I've well, you know, we've known about pheromones for a long time. We've known that humans have pheromones. Right. So this is interesting that they can even tell genetic information about the uh, potential spouse. It says women <laughs> seem to prefer the sense of men whose immune systems were the most different from the women's own immune systems. Is that interesting? Yeah. <laughs> so you're pooling your information to, uh, to make your children have a wider ability to fight off infection. Really? Yeah. Now, about the birth control pills, she says that more than 92 million prescriptions for hormonal contraceptives, including pills, patches, and injections, were filled last year in the United States, according to the data tracker IMS Health. And she says, studies have shown that when women are ovulating, they tend to be drawn to men with greater facial symmetry and more signals of masculinity, such as muscle tone, a more masculine voice, and dominant behaviors. I've, I've read some <laughs> of those studies in the past where they'll look at women's attractiveness to dominant behavior, and it's kind of interesting. One study I read about, they had a guy come into a bar, and they told him, we want you to act like a jerk, Okay, so he came into the bar, he started acting really jerky to people and being, you know, assaulted, not, um, he didn't hit anybody, but you know what I mean, he was aggressive, right. let's put it that way, he was right. in people's face and stuff, and, and right. then he left, and then they would interview women, okay, you know, what did you think about this other guy, the control person, you know, the control person who was really nice and sweet and stuff, and then they asked about the aggressive guy, the guy that they had told, we want you to act like a jerk, and guess what? I'm they like the jerk better. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> they were more attracted because he was dominant, right? He was more aggressive. Unbelievable. Yeah, so those are the kinds of, those are kinds of uh, studies that they do. Well, uh, I was a nice, see. quiet guy in high school. I guess that was my mistake, huh? Yep, there you go. <laughs> yeah, you, want the, you, you want the women, you got you to gotta be a jerk. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, well, a case, unless it's women on the pill, apparently, because she says here, that women on the pill no longer experience a greater desire for traditionally masculine men during ovulation. Their preference for partners who carry different immunities than they do also disappears. So this kind of genetic screening that goes on when a woman smells the man is gone. Let's see, she says that psychologist Stephen Gangston 
and his team at the University of New Mexico showed in a 2010 study that women with less masculine partners reported an increased attraction for other men during their fertile phase. Women partnered with traditionally masculine partners didn't have such urges, according to the study of 60 couples. So when the woman becomes more fertile, that is when she's more attracted to a more masculine man. Huh. Let's see, in another study, the researchers analyzed MHC genes, which are the immune genes, samples of 48 cu couples. Women partnered with men with whom they shared the least genetic diversity reported being less sexually responsive to their mates. The study was published in 2006 in the journal Psychological Science. So again, women are more attracted to more genetically diverse men, more different from themselves, at least as regards to immunity genes. Last thing I thought was interesting, they said there is also accumulating evidence indicating that men react differently to women when they are on birth controls. So they repeated this kind of smell the t-shirt test for men. So in 2004, a study in the journal in behavioral ecology used the t-shirt study methodology, but instead put the shirts on 81 women. Later, a panel of 31 men smelling the t-shirts experienced the greatest attraction for the non-pill-using women when they were ovulating. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and, and they also, as a control, they used 12 women on the panel who, who smelled the t-shirts and could not detect any difference in the t-shirts, but the men could. Okay. Is that interesting? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I guess I'm not sure what the message this gives us, except that we have to be careful what kinds of pills we take. And I think for what it's, reason? I think it's indicating that science can really mess around with your head, and you you may not even realize it. Yeah, absolutely. And medications. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's, well, that's that's really interesting. <laughs> well, that's it for our news of the day. Phew, I think that's enough news for one day. All right. <laughs> that gave me a lot to think about. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's go on to uh, today's topic. Great. Uh, I'm going to interview you about a very interesting uh, convention that you were just at recently, which we would like to know more about. Yeah, this, is, uh, this was a lot of fun. Yeah. You were at a convention at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia this past March 12th and 13th. Yep. And the name of the convention was Science and Faith, Friends or Foes? Yeah, this was put on by the Discovery Institute, which is a think tank that does economics, government, and also science. So these were some of the scientists from Discovery Institute, those who are involved in the intelligent design movement. So now we it was should a probably mention chance to to meet some really top-notch scientists, some people whose books I've read. I've read Jonathan Wells' book. Uh, he was there. I've read Guillermo Gonzalez's book and seen the video that he did on astronomy. He's an astronomer. So it was really, really neat. Jay Richards, who's a PhD economist. I've read his book, God, Money, and Greed. So that was, that was really good. It was, a, it was a terrific conference, and it was great of Westminster Theological Seminary to put it on. 
Now we should probably mention that the Discovery Institute isn't doesn't have any connection to the Discovery Channel, right? No, that's right. <laughs> yes, good point. Yes, in that's case it. anybody's confused there. <laughs> that's right. I, yeah, I don't think the Discovery Channel is yet willing to put on any intelligent design stuff. There would be too much complaints from the <laughs> evolutionists, I think. Yes, probably. So anyway, you uh, you mentioned that you had gone to a particular lecture here by a, a Dr. John West, who is a senior fellow at the uh, Discovery Institute. Yeah, he did a great job. He's He is an expert in the area of the history of science, and his particular interest is in the, the 20th century. So he did a terrific talk on the history of science during the 20th century. Yes, this uh, the notes that I have here on him sounds really interesting. It says that his current research examines the impact of Darwinian science on public policy and culture during the past century. Right. That, boy, I'll bet that's a complicated subject. Yeah, well, he's very definitely very knowledgeable. So it was it was uh, it was very good. Okay. Well, give us some background on this. Uh, he, it says here that uh, one of the points that he tried to make in his lecture was that science did not necessarily usher in a utopia in the 20th century, but yeah, it that's did right. usher he, in some other things. Yeah, he pointed out that at the turn of the century, scientists were claiming that they would be able to usher in a utopia. You know, they believed that they could bring in a new age of reason, a new age of science, a new age of harmony that where people would live together in peace. And they, he said that they, the point was that they believed in materialism. They believed in the fact that since we're only material animals, that there were material answers to human problems. So okay. any of the human problems that society was facing had material solutions and answers. And so they, as scientists, were equipped to be able to provide those kinds of material answers. And, and uh, the fact is that they didn't introduce any new age of, of brotherhood at all. And in fact, you know, we've mentioned in the past on previous shows that the 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history. Yes, I've heard that. And more people slaughtered than in the entire history of human beings prior to that. Whew, wow. So we didn't exactly end up like the Jetsons, huh? Yeah, you know, and that's a good, it's a good analogy, actually. <laughs> that's the kind of thing they thought, you know, science fiction was beginning to become very popular. Right. It's the kind of thing that they really thought they were going to be able to do. Well, we all thought by now we'd be flying around in air cars and pushing a button to get our meals and... Everybody would be getting along, and everything would be just great. Yep, yep. Unfortunately, things haven't changed all that much. <laughs> no, they haven't. No, they haven't. So, so he uh, spent the, the rest of the talk talking about what actually did happen. What, what were the scientists able to bring about? So before we get into that, let's just remind people that if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. You, if you'd like to email us, you can send your emails to email at evidence, the number four, faith.com, and you can listen to past podcasts there also. So, Kirk, let's get into 
some of the things that it did science did bring about in the 20th century and one was this idea of a technocracy okay so what's a technocracy that's a good question <laughs> this is when science rules over social policy okay and that definitely we have seen in the past before the 20th century a lot of other people were the experts the people the to go to for problems for instance politicians maybe pastors yes or religious leaders that's right but now who do you go to who are the experts who are the well just to say people in white lab coats i mean it's the scientists right those are who we look to for our problems we hang on every new word that comes out from the scientific community yep and a good example of, from the 20th century was the eugenics movement you know this was scientists making social policy right oh, we with think their studies and polls and everything say again with their studies and their polls and everything they tell us how you know we should run our lives and whatever yeah that's that's true and one example of their influence over public policy was eugenics where they told us that we needed to improve our breeding stock okay. so we're going to sterilize anybody who's an unfit parent and you know this really did take off it it was incredible so it's this idea of government by experts this sounds right? like we're coming close to nazism here yeah this is what the laid master down race the foundation yep. for, for nazism right yep, this is and and definitely the nazis were trying to rule by technocracy so another area that they brought up was this idea that there shouldn't be any punishment for criminals all right you know you don't punish criminals it's not their fault they're just a product of their material forces the chemical and hormonal actions of their brain instead what we need to do is give them treatment i'm just a product of my environment exactly right uh-huh and the same same kind of thing gave us the value free sex education Right? right? No morals, no right from wrong, just straight sex education. Any kind of consensual sexual behavior is okay. Yeah, exactly. So, they, so we reached basically the, uh, the natural limits of science. I mean, it, it showed, this technocracy showed that science really didn't have all the answers that they thought they did. You know, for one thing, many of the problems that human beings face and that society face are moral problems. Right. They're not physical problems. And you know, they're spiritual not, problems. Yeah, exactly. They're yeah. not material problems. They're more than, we are more, as human beings, we're more than just the animal bodies that we inhabit. Right. You can bring, bring a child up in the perfect environment and he can still turn out wrong. Exactly. Yeah. So there, there's really a lot more to it than, than science has the ability to, to focus on. And then it also showed that science is really not very good at ranking public goods. Look at the eugenics thing. For, for science, having a good breeding stock is very important. So it does make sense that we ought to forcibly sterilize those who are unfit to breed. But then where does justice come into, the, into play? Right. Where do human rights fit in? Right. So those things are ranked much lower by the elite 
the technocracy. Yeah. And then it also showed us that experts can be wrong. Again, the eugenics. Eugenics was backed prior. This is prior to World War II. Eugenics was popular in the United States. It was backed by the American Association for the Advancement of Science. It was backed by the universities of Harvard, Princeton, Yale. In fact, almost every major university, the scientists there supported and promoted the idea of eugenics. No kidding. And Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, there were thousands of people in the United States that were forced, had forced sterilizations. So against their will, they were sterilized in the United States, despite our rights. Wow. Yeah. So it was, and, and, and it wasn't science that corrected itself. It was World War II that corrected this opinion. Because of what the Nazis did, scientists were essentially shamed into giving up on the idea of eugenics. Really? So it wasn't just the Germans that came up with this idea then? Oh, not we at all. Flirt- we were no. flirting with it too. In fact, the, the, the Germans didn't even come up with it. It was, as far as I know, it was, it was come up with in the United States. It may have been England. I have to look back on the history of that. But the, this was just a natural outgrowth of the um, advancement of evolutionary science. Huh. Wow. Yep. Uh, another way, another thing that showed how experts can be wrong is the example of Alfred Kinsey who wrote was he's the famous sexologist you know who basically started the field of sexology he was a entomologist he was a he studied insects yes i and, find that interesting he started out studying the sex life of insects yeah that's right <laughs> and, and obviously insects have a very varied sexual practices and so he thought that this must be true for human beings also and it turns out that he falsified much of his data so not only can experts be wrong, but they can also falsify their data. And so we're led down the primrose path, not realizing that we're being lied to. When, One the, of the, facts, when the facts don't necessarily fit their uh, worldview, they just change the facts a little bit sometimes. Exactly right. One of the things that Kinsey is famous for is for giving us that data point that you still he- hear even today, that they're in a normal population, there are about 10% homosexuals. Well, that's not true. He got that data from prison populations. So in a male prison, the number of homosexuals is about 10%. But in a normal population, it's between 1% and 2%. Right. I've heard that many times, as a matter of fact. Recent studies have have, uh, backed up that 1% to 2% uh, conclusion. Yep. And then another thing, I don't know if you're old enough to remember, but they still used to talk about it a lot when we were young, is lobotomies. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Remember that? that? I mean, you don't hear it talked about at all, but this was a big thing in medicine. Yep. In fact, the surgeon who invented the lobotomy won the Nobel Prize, and it was sold as a, a miracle cure. You know, really, really frightening thing. Tens of thousands of people were lobotomized. Yep. So they they took instruments, punctured up through their through the uh, went through the nose up into the brain, and their the frontal lobes were lacerated Oof. in an effort to control them. Yeah. So can you imagine? 
And this was put forward as scientific and the, the latest thing. And now we know, of course, it was quackery. Well, even one of John F. Kennedy's sisters was lobotomized. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, one of his sisters, I can't think of her name off the top of my head, but uh, um, she had some kind of mental illness from birth. And uh, um, Joseph Kennedy, the father, had her lobotomized when she was a teenager, I think. He later realized that it was a mistake. But at the time, he thought it was the right thing to do, the right treatment to take care yeah. of her problem. He was listening to the experts. Yeah, but so, unfortunately it didn't work, and she ended up in an institution for the rest of her life. Ah, uh, incredible. Well, I'm after having her frontal lobe cut, I'm sure that she probably was no longer able to take care of herself. No, I don't think so. You basically yeah. become a vegetable, I think. Yeah, it, it hampers um, any normal kind of behavior also, uh, for whatever it did for any kind of psychological problems. Right. So this, Dr. West then really brought out the importance that policymakers have to challenge the scientific elite. It's not good enough to just listen to people who claim that they are telling you the science, that they are the experts, and that you ought to do what they say. It's crucial that our policymakers don't just listen to a bunch of scientists uh, in what they say. They have to challenge, they have to find out the data and really carefully examine it. I don't know if you remember, Kirk, the email that we got from an atheist one time who was asking us why it was that we doubted science and, and how we were, could be so untrusting. Huh, it was yeah. really kind of a funny letter as if there was something abnormal about that and he seemed to think that there was something emotionally wrong with us because we didn't trust science like we ought to. Yeah, right. Or like he did, I guess. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of people today still think that way. They think yeah. that science has all the answers. And, you know, people that don't go along with that, it's like, what's wrong with you? Right. Why aren't you in step with the rest of us? But when you really think about it, we've had morality plays back to... Uh, the novel Frankenstein by Mary Shelley that dealt with those very themes of how science, uncontrolled and unhampered by moral constraints, can, you know, go wrong. That's right. That's right. It's yep, been a popular to... theme in fiction for a long time. Right, right. Well, you know, we need to make sure that we don't, that we don't follow the scientific elite in areas, things like in sex education, where there's a lot of atheistic and immoral sexual education, stem cell research. You know, there's this focus on embryonic stem cell research as almost a matter of power. You know, the universities want the ability to experiment and clone human beings, even though the science shows that adult stem cells do the job. And Much all of better. the promising cures that we've been able to discover so far have been from adult stem cells and not from embryonic stem cell studies where they actually clone human beings. Right. Another item is uh, climate change. You know, the idea that carbon dioxide is making the, the earth warmer, you know, that's been shown to be totally wrong now. And prior to the show, I was just looking up some of the latest data. And even though the temperature of the Earth has been declining since 2001. The peak average temperature was in 2001. CO2 has continued to climb 
from the Hawaii observatory where they get the data. And from the ice core readings, we know that that CO2 will later fall, that as the temperature comes back down, the CO2 will later be, decades later, gets absorbed back into the ocean. So it's not from industry, it's not from human beings, but unfortunately, many scientists have been politicized and people who are political are taking advantage of the bad science and using it to force their political views. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of the uh, the environmental organizations are using, like you say, that inaccurate scientific data as a club to get people to stop using their cars and stop using airplanes and whatever. Right. Uh, and Tax they're us using... for our heating bills and electricity bills and on right. and on it goes. Right. And they're so using this, this false science as an excuse to justify that. Right. So Dr. West made this really interesting point because the conference was about science and religion and are they friend or foe. So it was about this supposed conflict that atheists like to say there is between science and religion. And he pointed out that the real war on science is the war about can science be criticized or not. So that's where the war is. It's can science be criticized, or is science so pure and so good that can never be criticized? That's where the war is on. It. Isn't it's it interesting about, how, in that sense, science has kind of replaced God as the thing you cannot uh, criticize? Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. We now worship science, and if, if you don't go along with that, then you're a heretic. <laughs> yep, many people do. Yeah. All right, well, let's go on to another item then. He mentioned that another thing that came about during the 20th century that science brought about was utopianism, right? The idea that, that you can control nature, okay? So humans can extend their control of nature over other humans. And one of the problems is that people are too credulous, right? They're too trusting of science, and they're really unaware of the misuse. He talked about the, back to that idea about the sterilizations, that there were tens of thousands of people in the United States sterilized. I said thousands, but I see in my notes here, it's actually tens of thousands. Wow. And then in Germany, prior to the war, they sterilized hundreds of thousands, were, had forced sterilization. Then that led then later to killing of handicapped and and this was done this this killing was done by doctors and scientists i don't know if you remember kirk about that study that we showed where they compared atheist doctors to religious doctors and how atheist doctors were much more likely to make decisions that would result in your death yes i remember that yeah yeah pretty scary well yeah. so we have to be aware of the misuses of of science. And of course, a lot of people are afraid today about the way the debate about health care is going, that soon our health care is going to be handed over to a small group of bureaucrats who are going to decide what treatment we get and what treatment we don't get, and whether we live or whether we die. Right. <laughs> Which is kind of the same thing. Yes, indeed. Exactly. The, another thing that he mentioned was that 40% of males in some schools in the United States are on Ritalin. Really? <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh, my gosh. 
and and this again is part of that control by the technocracy, the experts, listen to the experts. Uh, it's this utopianism, this idea that you can create a peaceful society through science. Just take the right drugs, we can control your brain. <laughs> yep. So, and this actually puts up a real struggle between Christianity and science because Christianity is anti-utopianism. Christianity doesn't believe that there's going to be this perfect peace and harmony, even though Christianity leads to the greatest amount of peace in the world and has historically shown that it leads to the greatest amount of, of peace on earth. Ultimately, it's non-utopian. It never loses sight of the true nature of human beings and the true evil that is in every person. Right, the moral corruption that's inherent in all of us. Yep. Another thing that he brought up that happened during the 20th century is the dehumanization that came about from the scientific establishment during the 20th century. Yeah, I think you've touched on that already. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's that idea about criminals not being responsible. Well, you know, if a criminal's not responsible, then you're taking away the dignity of his rationality, right? Human beings have dignity in what they do because they're thought to be rational. They're thought to be making choices. And then when you make a good choice, you ought to be rewarded or praised right. for making difficult choices. If you choose wrong, you ought to be scorned or shunned or punished, depending on what your choice was. And that provides dignity to people. It it, it treats them as more than just their... a thing or a machine that, that has no control over its behavior. Exactly. In a sense, this, this concept of criminals not being responsible is a dehumanization. It's treating them not like they are rational thinking humans, but that they're just a product of their hormones and chemistry in their head. It's denying another, the fact that they have a choice about anything. Yeah, exactly. Uh, another example is the modern, the early modern idea about architecture, you know, where they, everything was steel and glass and square boxes, and they were going to put people into these little cubby holes, right? <laughs> these ugly boxes. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really dehumanizing. There's no beauty there. There's no culture. It's just a place to be housed. It's like another a cattle I, pen. <laughs> another example is uh, the evolutionary view of business, right? The idea of the laissez-faire business theory. So it's thought to be free markets, but it's not. It's evolutionary free markets where the one business does whatever is necessary to crush the other business. Mm-hmm. You know, there was that movie recently, Wall Street. Uh-huh. Did you happen to see it? No, I didn't, but I've heard quite a bit about it. Yeah, that was a part two of the, the original Wall Street movie where they hammered home this idea that greed is good. And they were claiming that that was what capitalism is all about, but that's not what Christian free markets are about. That's a, a kind of scientific, evolutionary, dog-eat-dog -dog kind of free market. Survival and of the fittest. Where have we heard exactly. that before? <laughs> yeah, and, it, and it's really a dehumanization of people. We don't treat people like human beings. We treat them like the enemy. Right. One of the 
things in the eugenics movement is that reformers, people who tried to fight against eugenics, were denounced, right? They, you know, it, it was said that they wanted welfare for the feeble-minded, right? You know, they were called human waste. Hmm. So there was a real war against humanitarianism and altruism and looking out for weaker people and, um, you know, those who were, didn't have a high IQ, all of that was seen as the enemy. Hmm. And really a lot of this led to the crimes by the Nazis, you know, this dehumanization view, this Darwinistic view of people. He, he brought up the point that we still do this today. We still dehumanize people who are weaker than us. Think about the term persistent vegetative state. Hmm. Well, what are you saying about that person? They're a vegetable? Yep, basically. Well, they're not a, they're not a vegetable. Right. They're a human being. You know, it's, it's that kind of dehumanization that goes, goes along and, you know, we just don't notice it. And it's a part of the history of the 20th century. And really, you could extend that to the idea of abortion, too, that we've come to the point where we say that a child before it's born isn't really a human being, so we can do anything we want to it. Right. But strangely right. enough, the moment after it's born, then all of a sudden it becomes a human being and has rights. Yep. That, that's kind of weird when you think of it. It's like, you know, the difference is a couple of minutes, whether it's in the womb or out. <laughs> yep. But those are the rationalizations that you can go through when human beings are no longer human. Right. Well, really, that's no different. That, that's no different from what the Germans used to do. They used to say that certain groups of people were not human, such as the Jews or immigrants or you know whatever. Right. Exactly right. So the fourth item that he brings out that happened during the 20th century was the introduction of relativism. Oh boy, is that a biggie today? Yep, that sure is. <laughs> so things are relative. Words change meaning. There is no real truth, and that. This is where we got the idea about the changing meaning of the Constitution. So it used to be that the Constitution was called a living document because it meant that even though it stay, always stayed the same, you could have you had the amendment process by which you could change and as if time showed that there wasn't a change needed. But or maybe not so much change it, but update it. Yeah, exactly. And what happened with in the 20th century? You have relativism, and no, we don't need to bother with the amendment system. That's too difficult. We'll just change the meanings of the words. Uh-huh. So there's, he gave a quote by Roosevelt. I wish I'd had time to look it up about uh, the Constitution. He said that it has to evolve like Darwinism. Oh, geez. Yeah. So he was one of the proponents of this idea that the Constitution changes by how we think it ought to change. And, wow. you know, and this really is a Darwinian idea. Darwin talked about the fact that there aren't any, there are no objective values, there are no real objective institutions, even marriage. So. Yeah, and we're seeing that today where people are trying to change the entire definition of that. Exactly. Yep. So that, that's the idea of relativism. And then finally, he brought out the point about one of the big things that happened in the 20th century that was brought about by science was the suppression of free inquiry. Now, isn't that ironic? <laughs> Absolutely. Because isn't that what science is really supposed to be, is free inquiry? And yes. yet you're saying that the more science we have, 
the more that's being the free inquiries being suppressed has been suppressed yeah and he pointed out an interesting thing one of the main ways that this is done is by making every topic about science versus faith okay mhm and i don't know if you saw the first debate of the presidential candidates this season it was last week i believe no i didn't yeah, Juan Williams asked a question of one of the candidates about should creationism be taught in the schools, and he phrased the question as a fight over faith and science. Uh -huh. Now, Dr. West pointed out that what you're doing is you're shifting the content of the debate away from the actual facts, the actual merits of the argument, to the motives of the person. So when you're saying, well, this is faith versus science, you're saying that the motives, I'm questioning your motives. I think your motives are religious as opposed to the actual science, when in reality, it's actually about the science. It's about <laughs> the data. Right. So it's not about the motives of the person. In fact, if you want to go that route, you can just as equally argue that it's the motives of atheists who want to promote atheism. And secularism. Not, yeah, exactly. By not permitting any kind of evidence that's contrary to their views and saying that those people are motivated by religion. Right. And an example of this would be that this would clearly disqualify Martin Luther King as a spokesperson for human rights. Because after all, he's motivated by religious. This is about faith. Right. Does that make much sense? Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. So, it's, it really shouldn't be about the motives of the person. It has to be about the actual science. You know, after all, can't, wouldn't their anti-religious motives disqualify them from their viewpoints? Wow. Yeah, we've really gotten off onto, we've made the side argument the main argument. The main argument should be, is there any validity in this point of view? But instead of considering that, we've gone to the side argument about, well, why are you bringing this argument up? Are you on the science side or are you on the faith side? Yeah, and exactly. And if you're on the faith side, so you're the wrong side. That's suppression of free thinking. It's a suppression of anyone who criticizes the current paradigm. And it's a. And he brings out this point that it's that it stems from a rise in authoritarianism in science. And he gave yep. an example of a Nexus Search study that was done where they compared the percentage of times that different phrases were used in in uh, journal articles. Mm -hmm. So they looked at a twenty-year time frame, and they looked at phrases such as. Science says we must, or scientists say we should, uh -huh. or science requires, or science dictates. Right. So, guess how? Guess what the results were over a 20-year period? I bet they used those phrases a huge amount of the time. <laughs> Much more. Yeah. In the past 20 years, there's been a 1,400% rise in the usage of such phrases. Is that incredible? Yep. So it's it's an example of the kind of 
station that science has had. I mean, when we were young, science had a very authoritarian position, the men in white lab coats. But today, it's even worse. It's much worse today. Much worse. Well, Kirk, I guess if there's nothing else, I guess we'll have to sign out. I think we're out of time for today. We are. You have been listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And join us again for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.